You can all be seated. Uh, we're, uh, we're nearing the end of our journey through the book of John. And we spent the last couple of weeks discussing the resurrection of Jesus. And one thing that we've noted over the past couple of weeks is that John makes no effort to explain the resurrection. It's a miracle. And the reality is, one of the qualifying characteristics of a miracle is that it can't be explained. So instead of trying to explain the resurrection, John presents the evidence. He presents his eyewitness account of what he saw on that Good Friday that Jesus was crucified and that Easter Sunday when Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, John himself wrote in John 19.35, He who saw it, the crucifixion in this case, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. So you hear that kind of courtroom kind of language, right? John is bearing witness, and he's giving testimony. He's swearing that he's telling the truth, and he's doing so with one singular purpose, so that you might believe in Jesus, uh, so that I might believe in Jesus. So, in fact, the entire purpose of the book of John is summed up in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He who saw it has... Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These are written so that you might believe. These are written, talking about the things that Jesus did. These are written so that you might believe. So John's writing is intended to provoke us toward faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, believing so that we can have life. Not just a quantity of life, eternal life in communion with God, but a quality of life. A life where you no longer have to fear God's judgment anymore, but instead you can enjoy an unending, completely satisfying, unbreakable relationship with God if you just believe. So today's text, we arrive at a story that a lot of you are familiar with, the story of Thomas, or Doubting Thomas, as we all know him, the disciple who wouldn't believe unless he saw for himself. So what we're going to do is see here that this isn't an incriminating testimony aimed at the character defects of Thomas, but instead this testimony reveals to us the character and the work of the person of Jesus Christ. Thomas might have been a man who wrestles with the truth, but in the end we see that Jesus shows that he is trustworthy. Thomas is a man who struggles with doubt, but Jesus shows that he is a God that you can believe in. And in the end, even doubting Thomas confesses the deity and the holiness of Christ. So let's, uh, let's take a minute and let's remove our distractions and our own personal issues and our worry. And let's ask God to reveal to us who he is. Let's pray. God, show us your holiness so that we might realize and confess your greatness. Show us our own sinfulness so that we can receive forgiveness. 
God, I pray that you would strengthen and increase our faith in you. God, we bring our hearts to you today, some filled with love and gratitude and joy, and some filled with pain and worry and heartache and doubt. But whatever we bring today, we offer it to you, and we thank you for receiving it. God, remove the blinders from our eyes so that we can see your mercy and your grace and your love working in our lives. Help us to be consumed by the beauty and the holiness and the loveliness and the sweetness of the gospel. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's, uh, let's all stand in reverence uh, for the reading of God's holy word. We'll start with John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. So it's Sunday evening, the third day after Jesus' brutal crucifixion and his death on the cross, a few hours after the disciples have seen the empty tomb of Jesus and Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Jesus face to face and she reported what she saw to the disciples. And now the disciples, just a few hours later, are huddled together in a room somewhere, hiding from the Jews, scared of every footstep they hear outside the door, wondering if it's the Jewish religious leaders coming to accuse them the way they did Jesus, or the temple guard coming to arrest them the way they did Jesus, or the Roman authorities coming to crucify them the way they did Jesus. They're literally scared out of their minds at this point. And then suddenly, Jesus is in their midst. I don't know how this happened. One second in Scripture, Jesus is not in the room. The next, he is. Now, there could have been some detail left out, and maybe Jesus just physically walked up and knocked on the door, and the disciples let him in. I don't know. Maybe he just magically, miraculously appeared. I'm not sure, and I don't think it really matters. But we do know that the disciples were there without him and fearing for their lives, and then Jesus is present with them, and he begins to speak. And when Jesus speaks, he speaks two things into their lives. One, he speaks a promise of peace. And two, he speaks a purpose into their lives. So here's what he does. First, he speaks a promise. And the promise is this, peace with God through the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Jesus greets his disciples with a phrase, uh, Shalom Alekum, peace be with you, or peace be upon you. Now, if you look back at John chapter 14, Jesus 
is explaining back then to his disciples that he's about to die. And he's instructing them to understand that faith in Christ is the only way to the Father, and that he's not going to, de- to leave the disciples high and dry, even though he's about to die. John chapter 14, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. Now, when we think about peace, we think about that peaceful, easy feeling that the eagles used to sing about, right? That's what we think about, where life is all blue skies and white sand and clear ocean water and cold margaritas, and the Georgia Bulldogs always win on Saturday, right? That's peace. When the world is in perfect harmony, when love is real and it's fresh and there's no relationship issues, no fighting on social media over politics, no fussing with the neighbors over dogs that bark at night, no stress at work, no kids acting like professional wrestlers in the Mexican restaurant, just a worry-free existence, right? But the reality is, though... We live in a fallen and broken world, and there will always be problems to deal with. But Jesus comes to his disciples and is telling them that peace is going to be with them. And here's what he's talking about. Paul wrote about this type of peace that Jesus is offering his disciples in Romans 4 and 5. He said, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul is talking about peace here, he specifically means peace with God. Jesus isn't promising a peaceful, easy feeling. He's offering the disciples peace with God. God is holy. We are sinful. But our sins are cleansed from us by the cross. And we're justified before God by the resurrection. Only a pure and spotless spiritual resume without any sin, righteousness, will justify you before God. And Jesus has the track record that we need to be justified before God. So, uh, because He is God in the flesh. He is holy. So how do we know that He is a holy God? Romans 1-4, we've talked about this the last two or three weeks, says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. Only a perfect, pure, holy sacrifice can pay the price for sins. Only God is perfect, pure, and holy. So how do we know that Jesus is that perfect sacrifice, that he's God in the flesh? He was raised from the dead. So we gain peace with God by faith, by trusting in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and the power of of his resurrection, 
This is not a peace that you only have on sunny days at the beach. It's a peace that you can have even in the trials and the troubles of life. In verse 20 of today's text in John chapter 20 says, He showed them his hands and his side. Jesus does this to confirm that the work of peacemaking with God has been fully completed through his suffering on the cross. So Jesus is showing the disciples that he is faithful to his promises. He told the disciples that he would come to them, and he has. And he's given them peace with God through his death on the cross. And the evidence is in the scars on his hands and on his side. So the promise here from Jesus to his disciples is this. Even when life is hard, even when the world seems to be spinning out of control around you, even when your plans aren't working out the way you imagined they would, even when death is knocking at your door, you can trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus speaks a promise into the disciples' lives, a promise of peace, and he also speaks a purpose into their lives. Jesus' stated purpose for the disciples is to be sent by Jesus to share God's plan for salvation. John 20, 21 through 23 says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Well, this is John's version of the Great Commission. And there's a version of this in each of the Gospels. Jesus is sending out his disciples, full of the Holy Spirit, giving testimony to what they have seen, preaching that Jesus has died on the cross so that we might have forgiveness of sins and been raised from the dead so that we might have eternal life. God the Father sent Jesus. God sent Jesus to be born in a filthy barn and to grow up in a dirty world and get baptized in a muddy river and put his hands in the rotten sores of lepers and have adulterous women wash his feet with their hair and Roman soldiers to pull out his own hair by the roots. He went to dinner with drunks and gluttons and with religious men and local terrorists and cultural traitors. His closest friends were crude and rough-handed fishermen who were inconsistent and impulsive and thick-headed. And he lived a perfect life. And his reward was to endure the, the insults and the accusations of the Pharisees and the whips of Roman soldiers tearing his flesh to shreds and nails driven into his flesh. And he took the punishment for all the sins of the world so that all the sinners in the world who might believe in him could be saved. He died with criminals and was buried in a borrowed tomb. He put the eternal needs of others ahead of his own power and his own authority and his own rights. And he made promises to the broken and the depressed and the orphaned and abandoned and rejected and the ones who were just worn out and beaten up by life 
and beaten up by sin. And he kept every promise he made to them. He made himself small so that we could be lifted up. And in doing so, he gives us a purpose in life to be sent to tell his story so that the weary and the hurting and the ashamed and the broken might turn away from their sins and turn to Jesus. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man, the main thing we live for, the reason we exist, our purpose in life, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And John Piper wrote, The whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this, to feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as He really is. To be sent to sinners to share the good news of God's mercy and love. And it's the same message that Jesus preached while he was here on earth. Luke 5.32 I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. And I know. I know it's sort of the prevailing thought. In our culture. That sharing the gospel with people. Is the preacher's job. Right? That's what we pay Lee Adams to do. Lee Adams can do that. But Charles Spurgeon says, said that if you don't feel a burden to share the gospel and to see the salvation of others, then you just might not be saved yourself. I could stand up here every Sunday and tell you how amazing I am and what an incredibly perfect marriage Brittany and I have and give you tips on how to be successful in life and love and finance. And I would be lying to you every step of the way if I told you that I followed all those rules. And I might be able to give you some advice that was meaningful and effective in some areas of your life. But it's Jesus that gives us a real story to tell. Jesus died on the cross so that I could be free from all the skeletons in my closet and all the consequences of all the areas of life where I fall short and He rose from the dead so that I don't have to fear dying anymore. But instead, I can enjoy God forever. I'm afraid of not having enough money in the bank. I'm afraid of not providing well for Brittany and my kids. I'm afraid of my diabetes and what it's going to do to me in 10 or 15 or 20 years. Hasn't stopped me from eating chocolate chip cookies. But I do think about it and I fear it. But I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of that. Because Jesus has risen from the dead and defeated death. And he's made it clear that eternal life is found in knowing him. This is the message that that Christ has entrusted us with. God sent Jesus to point us toward eternity. 
And Jesus sends us to point others toward him. Verse 24. Doubting Thomas. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed. For Thomas, he was not surprised by the cross at all. He completely recognized the trouble that Jesus was stirring up with his teaching. And he fully anticipated that it was eventually going to get Jesus killed and probably all of his disciples killed. If you look back right before Jesus' arrest in John chapter 11, Jesus had suggested to the disciples that they go to Bethany after they heard that Lazarus was sick. Thomas' reaction to this in John eleven sixteen was this. He said, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is essentially saying, come on, boys, let's pack up our stuff and go get killed. You can't say that Thomas wasn't courageous, but he was a little bit pessimistic. He was a little bit skeptical. He loved Jesus. There's no doubt about that. He loved Jesus enough that he was willing to follow him to Bethany and even risk his life and eventually to Jerusalem where Christ would be crucified. He expected that Jesus would die. But when it happened, he was crushed. He was crushed. Now Thomas did what a lot of people do when they experience disappointment in life. And they're conflicted about whether or not they can trust God. Whether or not God has their best interests at heart. Whether or not they understand his plan for his life. This is what Thomas did. He put himself on a spiritual island and he distanced himself from Christian fellowship. When we need God the most, we have a tendency to avoid the places and the situations where we will most likely encounter him. About two years ago, I had a conversation with a great friend of mine, somebody that I dearly love, who had kind of stopped going to church for quite a while and you can see a change in his temperament and his mood and we had a conversation about it and he said I'm going to be honest with you I haven't cracked my Bible or prayed in almost a year and I quit going to church about six months ago he said I mean I'm seeking God but he's just not there for me and my response was um You just told me you avoided all the places where you might possibly find them. Thomas chose to be alone in his grief. 
We know this because the first time Jesus appeared to his disciples, Thomas was not there. When Thomas heard their report that Jesus had come back from the dead, he refused to believe it. He said, not only do I have to see Jesus, I have to touch his wounds to believe what you're telling me. Thomas is a lot like us. You can be in the park somewhere and you see a bench and it has a wet paint sign. You can look at it. You can tell it's been freshly painted. And it's clean and it's shining in the sun and it looks brand new. So you know and you believe that it's been recently painted. And when you get close enough to it, though, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to walk over that paint. You're going to touch it to see if it's dry or not. Even though you've seen the sign, you've seen the bench, you know it's been painted. But we can't resist, can we? We've got to touch it. We see the message. There's no reason to disbelieve the message, but we don't always trust the message. The news that Jesus had returned seemed too good to be true. So Thomas did what Thomas did best. He showed his skeptical attitude. He said that he would never believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he had seen and handled the print of the nails in his hands and thrust his hand into the wound that the spear had made in Jesus' side. So a week passes and Jesus appears to the disciples again. And this time Thomas was there. Jesus can sense Thomas' pains and his doubts. And he doesn't wait for Thomas to ask to touch his hands or his side. He invites Thomas to test his wounds for himself, to touch the nail prints in his hand, to feel the wound in his side. And all Thomas can say is, my Lord and my God. In the original language of the text, Thomas is making two statements here. One is a statement of recognition. My Lord. He knows with certainty that this is Jesus raised from the dead. And the second one is a statement of shock. My God! It's like you're getting a stick of wood out of the wood pile and you pick it up to take it inside the house to have a nice warm fire. And there's a snake right underneath the piece of wood, right? My God! Or if you see an Auburn fan and they're working on a math problem, my God! Can you believe that? So when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, what he's really saying is, Jesus, it's really you. Can you believe this is happening? What's happening here is that Thomas sees who God is and it provokes him to confession. We read it earlier in Isaiah 6 in our Old Testament reading today. Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah sees God on the throne in heaven, surrounded by angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And Isaiah sees that God is holy, holy, holy. And what he realizes all of a sudden is he is not, not, not. 
He understands that God is holy and he is sinful and he can't be in the presence of God in this sinful state. But God is merciful and he responds to Isaiah's brokenness over his sin that separates him from the holy God. And he makes a way for Isaiah to be made clean and to have his sins atoned for. Isaiah 6, 7 and 8. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this is Touch your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah encounters God, and his sins are forgiven. He confesses who God is, that he's holy. And then God commissions Isaiah and sends him on a mission to share the truth of who God is. Verse 8 of Isaiah 6, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is a familiar pattern. It's Christianity in a nutshell. We understand that God is holy and we are not and we can't be in right standing before God in our sinful state and we can't fix that problem on our own. We need someone to save us from our sins. We need somebody to cleanse us from our sins. And God does that through the nail prints in Jesus' hands and the wound in His side through the person and the work of Christ on the cross. Christ makes us clean so that we can enjoy the presence of God and have peace with God and have a purpose in life to be sent on mission to share the story of God's mercy toward us. We all know Thomas is doubting Thomas, but I think he probably got a bad rap that he didn't necessarily deserve because his experience is not unique to believers today and it's not unique to followers of Christ in the Bible. We believe in Christ and we trust in His goodness as long as it's convenient or safe or circumstances make it easy for us to believe and trust. But what do we do when life is tough, when things are hard and nothing seems to go our way? Mark 9 tells a story about a parent who had a child who was afflicted by a demon and the possession would manifest itself in gruesome ways. The child was tormented with seizures. The Bible said that he would foam at the mouth and grind his teeth and become stiff. And more than that, there was some some serious torment that would cause him to self-harm. He would throw himself into fire, into bodies of water that they were walking by in an attempt to injure or even kill himself. And he was mute, so there was no hope of him engaging in any counseling or therapeutic process to help him get his emotions out. And he was deaf, so he couldn't hear any encouragement or any love coming from his father to give him peace. The boy's father comes to Jesus and he pleads with him in Mark 9, 22. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus responds to this desperate dad, worn out by the circumstances of caring for a child that quite frankly, today's world would tell him to throw away in the womb. But he loves him. He desperately wants him to be whole. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the father of this broken little boy looks at Jesus and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. He believed, but he needed help. Matthew 11, John the Baptist sits in a prison cell, waiting to die, waiting to be beheaded. This was the forerunner, the one chosen by God to proclaim that the Messiah had come to save mankind. And he preached bold messages. And the central theme of his preaching was Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. He had drawn massive crowds and he had baptized countless people and he had done good and he had helped people enjoy changed lives. And now he's going to die because he committed a terrible crime. He said that sin was sin. And he sits in Herod's jail cell waiting to be beheaded. And he sends a question to Jesus. The Jesus he's been preaching about. Are you the one? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? He believed, but he needed reassurance. In John 14, there's Philip, who's been with Jesus every step of his three-year ministry. He's seen every miracle. And Jesus is over and over exclaimed in front of him that he and God the Father are the same. And Jesus says in John 14, 6 through 7, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Jesus is making it crystal clear for his disciples. If you know me, you know God. If you've seen me, you've seen God. Then Philip turns around and says, Lord, show us the Father. And that'd be enough for us. Philip felt like Jesus was talking in riddles and he was looking through muddy water to find God. He believed But he needed some clarity to understand the truth. And then there's Thomas. And I don't think we can blame Thomas for being skeptical. He had left everything to follow Jesus. He had risked his life for him. And now he's grief-stricken because things didn't work out the way that he thought they would. Jesus died. Thomas had heard Jesus say he would come back. But resurrections are not something that happen every single day. I've never seen one in my lifetime. And Thomas had never seen one in his. This is what he said in John 20, 25. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Jesus didn't shame him for his doubt. And said, he said to Jesus, to, Jesus said to Thomas in John 20, 27, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas believed that he needed evidence. Bobby Conway wrote a book called Doubting Toward Faith. And in it, he said that doubt is directional. We choose to either doubt toward God or we doubt away from God. We can focus on our desperation when situations in life are overwhelming us. We can focus on our hopelessness and we can move away from Jesus. We can withdraw like Thomas when faith doesn't seem to be working our way or we can move toward Jesus. If you ask him for help like the desperate father, he is help. If you ask him for reassurance, like the hopeless John the Baptist, he is reassurance. If you ask for the truth, like Philip, he is the truth. If you ask him for evidence, like the skeptical Thomas, he is the evidence. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote, God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman. He becomes the father of the orphaned. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person. He is the healer to the sick. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and depressed. She wrote, this is what you do when someone you love is in anguish. You respond to the plea of their heart by giving them your heart. When you have doubts and fears and frustrations, Christ steps into your anguish. He steps into your hopelessness. He steps into your muddy water. He steps into your doubts. He steps into your fears. He even steps into the messes that you've made with your sins. And he points you to himself and he gives you his heart. In Isaiah 6, the angels sang, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. If God is holy, Austin, if God is holy, can he sin? If God is holy, can he sin? If he can't sin, can he lie? Can he cheat on? If he's holy, can he break his promises to you? He can't say he'll never leave you and then drop you like a hot rock when you start having trouble and doubt. So if God is holy, then he is trustworthy. And that's all he demands of you. You trust him. Trust in a higher love than any earthly love you could ever know. Trust in the love of Jesus. Spurgeon wrote, To 
trust God in the light is nothing. To trust Him in the dark, that is faith. John 13, 1 says that Jesus loved His disciples to the end. This inconsistent, ragtag bunch of followers that He called. He loved them to the end. You know what this says? It says there's no exit strategy with Jesus. There's no prenuptial agreement with Jesus. In the words of John Bunyan, he loves those who trust in him to the end of their lives, to the end of their sins, to the end of their temptations, to the end of their fears. So look beyond your trouble and your anxiety and your fear and your doubts and look to Jesus. Send all your doubts and pain and worry and heartaches his direction and trust in God. Trust in his love. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. Jesus spoke a benediction to close his interaction with Thomas. He said to him in John 20, 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We live in a skeptical and a cynical world. Fake news on social media and the television. Politicians lying constantly. COVID numbers that contradict themselves. Everyone saying their truth is the real truth. And if we're honest with each other... We all have difficulty with believing even what we see. Fact is, I would wager that 99% of the men in this room have done this. You're watching TV and you point the remote toward the television to change the channel. And a message pops up on the screen and it says, remote battery needs changing. And you know it's true. You know it's true. You see the message and you don't change the batteries and you keep using that remote until finally you point it at the television and nothing happens. You know what you do? You mash the button harder. You see the message. You see the truth. But you don't trust it. So seeing isn't always believing, is it? But if faith doesn't come to us by seeing Jesus, then how do we believe? Paul lays it out in Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. All the evidence. Right here. All of it. God taught us everything we need to know to have a saving faith in Jesus. He showed us the eyewitness testimony in his word. John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's where we'll be next week. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.